All right, um, so we're wrapping up our Joy to the World series, and as we've been talking about, our theme this whole month has been off of the verse Luke 12, 32. You guys remember this? It's Jesus is saying, fear not, because it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the what? The kingdom, it's the Father's good pleasure. So it's a good idea. He's happy about it. God is in a good mood to interact with you, right? And so we talked about how we're challenging everybody to explore this verse on your own, to really think about it, let it sink in, and get used to the idea that God is actually really happy to know you, happy to have you in his family, happy to be one with you. Um, Okay, so uh, I'm going to give a little recap as well. We've been talking a little bit over this season about the, the events and the prophecies leading up to Jesus' birth. We talked about what was happening in the cosmos. It's a huge word for it, but you can catch that on the podcast from week one if you haven't understood that. We talked about how most likely the day of Jesus' birth was planned before the foundation of the world was even set in motion. None of it was a surprise. God knew exactly what he wanted to do, how he wanted to do it, when he wanted to do it. Uh, we talked about last week the angels bursting forth on the scene because heaven was so excited for Jesus to come to the earth. We need to renew our minds. That reality because God is not disappointed, annoyed, and you know, done with you. He's actually really, really excited to know you and interact with you. We talked last week about how God is always up to something, right? How He raised up the Magi and brought them all the way to set Jesus up to be the future king. We talked about how Jesus was born the king of the Jews, and that salty insult the Magi said to King Herod, the the, the king who got his title king of the Jews through bribery and, and through unholy means, and then the Magi show up, and the first thing out of their mouth, if you remember from last week, was, where's the one who was born king of the Jews? In other words, listen, we know it's not you. (laughs) Where's the real guy? Um, And so we talked about how uh, joy is um, not just a feeling, it's not just a a perspective, it's also a person, and how we can learn to not reject joy, but actually embrace the person of joy in the Christmas season. Amen. So we're caught up. Today is that long-awaited moment of Jesus's actual birth. We get to talk about that today, and I'm excited for that. So um, I've already shared this with you a couple weeks ago, but Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, is what we're going to be going off of today. And this is what it says. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. People are familiar with this verse, right? A lot of us have heard this. We sang it in worship today. Emmanuel. There's two different spellings. They mean the same thing. El, E-L, is actually the Hebrew word for God. So if you are familiar with the different names of God, you'll see names like El Shaddai. El is the actual word that means God, G-O-D. So this word Emmanuel means God, L, with us. He became one of us. And this is the sign. It's the sign of the new covenant. We've been talking about what the new covenant was and is and how we interact with it the last couple of months. And what I think is amazing is this prophecy was given seven to 800 years before Jesus is born. And God is saying through Isaiah that there's going to be a sign that something amazing is happening. And here's what it is. A virgin will conceive and they'll call him Emmanuel. In other words, this will not just be a baby. It will be God among you. That's pretty awesome stuff. So Jesus is born Emmanuel. He is born God with us. He's born God for us. And he is born God as us. He's not just God for us like he's on our team. He is God as us. This is why he became flesh, right? 
I, I could go on and on and on for this, and so I'll keep it brief. Um, but, you know, the reality is the history of the Old Testament was proving one thing, that it was almost impossible for the people of God to stay loyal to their God without an indwelling presence. Listen, they had a pillar of fire. They had bread springing up from the ground. They were like complaining about wanting meat. You know, they'd been on a Daniel fast for a while on the, or the manna fast. And that would be a good one though, right? Just only bread. That would be, anyways, um, tangent. So, you know, they're complaining about this bread that's basically a vitamin as well and probably doesn't make you smell things, you know, after you take a vitamin and you, anyways, moving on. So, um, <laughs> So they're like going, God, we haven't had meat in so long. And the Lord goes, okay, boom, all these quail everywhere. Miles of quail building a quail wall around them. I mean, this is bonkers. It's like uh, if you would just, you know, snap and then it's there. And God's going, listen, I'm here to care for you. But even in the midst of all those miraculous signs, the people were unable to stay loyal to him. And so God figured this out. In fact, he knew this beforehand. But he figured it out that you couldn't stay loyal unless you had him not just outside leading you, but inside leading you as well. How is he going to do that? He's going to send Jesus as you, with you, for you, as a human. And so when Jesus is born, in this moment, I mean, if I could go back in time travel, one of the top places I would go is to be able to hold baby Jesus, right? Jesus is like baby Yoda. I mean, just so cute. And you, you want to hold him. And he's helpless and fragile, and yet he's God. He's the inventor of the universe, but he's this helpless little baby. It's mind-boggling. And so the moment of Jesus' birth is this moment of triumphant victory. Amen? Because now God is saying to the world, and the angels are echoing this as they burst forth through the sh to the shepherds that night, God is saying, listen, it's time to begin my plan A point A. Because <laughs> it always was his plan in the Garden of Eden. He always knew Jesus was going to come. And now it's time and it's exciting. So Jesus comes in flesh as us to show us what it looks like to be victorious. Amen. He lives this perfect life to go, hey guys, you've been blowing it for thousands of years. Watch me. I'm going to become you. I'm going to set aside all of my divinity, all my godlike stuff. I'm going to become you. And then you get to watch me do this thing so that you get to go be like me. It's a triumphant thing. In the ancient Israel culture and the Old Testament culture, the one for all concept was actually very, everybody knew it. You know, David did it, Jesus did it, the three musketeers did it, you know, the all for one, one for, no, some of you guys are too young for that one. Uh, but here's the thing. There was this understanding that you could have someone go as your proxy, like think ambassador in our day and age. So in the, in the biblical times, when David shows up to the battlefield and he's looking at Goliath and they had made this decision, this nation and this nation will send one person and those two people will duke it out, and whoever wins is winning on behalf of their nation, right? It wasn't just these two fighting. It was, I'm actually going in the name of Israel. Goliath shows up as all the Philistines. The entire weight of the Philistines' future was on him. Are you guys tracking with me? So I know, what does David have to do with Christmas? Just hear me out. So Jesus, I mean, excuse me. So David is standing there, and he's A, thinking, I've got this. B, he's thinking, I've got this because you and me, God, we're tight. But also, he's thinking, I've got this because I am going as your people. 
Not just me and my lonesome self. I'm actually stepping up to this battle as the entire nation of Israel. So there was a trust there. There was a trust in his covenant with God, not just David's, the entire nation. Are you guys tracking with me? This is the one for all concept. So we fast forward a little bit, and when Jesus goes to the cross, he doesn't just go to the cross for you. He goes to the cross as you. Does that make sense? So when he goes, what he's doing is he's saying, it's no longer me. It's not, okay, let me me start over. When God is looking at Jesus on the cross, he's not looking at Jesus on behalf of you. He's looking at you because the one for all was applying. Okay? So here's what's crazy. Nobody really asked for Jesus to be born. Right? Nobody really said, um, Jesus, would you, you know, be born and live this spotless life for me? That's not really what happened. God said, this is what I'm doing. It's interesting, as Americans, this one-for-all concept is something we cannot comprehend. I mean, the fabric of our DNA as a nation is we are all on our own, right? The king does not speak for us. We've rowed across the ocean, and here we are. And, you know, that, that's the fabric of us as Americans. So this idea that one person could speak on behalf of just our country is mind-boggling to us. I mean, can you even imagine we get into some sort of a war with Canada and Mexico, and we're all trying to decide who gets to call North America the home, right? And, and then we go, okay, here's what we're going to do. One person from each nation will come. Half the nation would go, uh, you don't speak for me. Uh, No, you know, they picked who? I don't think so. It doesn't matter who they pick, right? Half of everybody is going to say, no, you don't speak for me. No, I didn't ask for that. Therefore, what you do doesn't apply to me. In the kingdom, that's not the way that it is. In the kingdom, what Jesus did applies to you, whether you asked him to or not. So salvation is this component. Salvation is saying, I'm accepting what you did on my behalf. Choosing to not be saved is saying, nope, you don't speak for me, Jesus. It's really as simple as that, right? But humanity, we didn't ask for Jesus to be born. We didn't ask for him to be born a sweet little baby. He was. It was God's plan. God saying, I'm sending one for all, for all. The final one for all. Amen? This is fascinating to me because when Jesus died as you, he, when, when he comes to the earth, it's like, can you see the parallel between all of it? So let's talk a little bit about like the manger, the specifics of Jesus' actual birth. So, you know, we know the story in the Bible where Joseph and Mary go on this journey back to Bethlehem. And they're on this quest. And for some reason, pop culture has made us read it like this. The whole family had to travel, but Joseph and Mary were on their own. It doesn't really make sense, right? They most likely were in a caravan of their family traveling. Now, let's talk about geography for just a quick second. I've probably already lost some of you just by saying the word geography. Just hang in there. From Galilee to Bethlehem is 90 miles. In Jesus' day, walking was no big deal. Walking was their car, right? That's how they got around. And so it was no big deal to walk something like 10 miles a day. That was an easy day. In Jesus' ministry, um, he averaged 20 miles a day, guys. That was like some power quads. 20 miles a day. And so when Mary, she's very big and pregnant, but walking that distance was not that arduous. And she probably wasn't riding a donkey, at least the whole time. 
okay? Because donkeys are a lot slower than how they could have walked by foot. So they had to travel 90 miles. Um, there was actually an archaeological dig that pulled up. That's, it was something like a poster. That's not the right word for it. But it was like a sign that went on the side of the road from Galilee to Bethlehem that was talking about the dangers of the lions and bears in the forest. So if you've ever been pregnant or your wife has been pregnant or your sister's been pregnant, you know somebody that's been pregnant, you don't want to be in the vicinity of a lion and bear because you can't run too fast. You know, it wouldn't be a positive thing. And so Mary is going on this quest 90 miles. It was 70 miles if you went through Samaria, but won't get into that. They probably didn't do that. So about a four to nine day walk, okay? Now, the Bible tells us when they got to Bethlehem, she went into labor. Have you ever been somewhere and something happened even two days after, but it wasn't your hometown, so you basically said, when I got there, this happened? It feels like, so we don't know, did she cross the line of Bethlehem and suddenly her water breaks? Maybe, maybe not. Was she already there at a house and then she went into labor? Maybe. There's a lot to the story that pop culture has told us that isn't entirely accurate. So we know they probably didn't travel alone. If there's, you know, any of us that are mothers in the room or aunts and, and even godmothers to children, you know if you have a child that's like 15 years old, about to give birth, you're not sending them on some five-day walk with a first-time dad, just good luck, babe, you know. No, we're all going to the same place. We're going to go together. And so they get to Bethlehem, and the Bible tells us that, this, that there's no room in the inn. Okay, now I click those seatbelts on because I'm not trying to ruin your Christmas picture, Okay but I might, so apologies in advance. The inn has two different meanings, that word inn. One of them actually means like a hotel, like we are accustomed to thinking. She gets there, the, the sign is saying, you know, no vacancy, all that kind of stuff. The other one is you would actually refer to your extra bedroom as an inn. So all of the houses would have had a room that we would call spare bedroom, they would call an inn. So in the Passion Translation in Luke chapter 2, it actually says that there was no room in any of the upper rooms in Bethlehem. Now, I want us to think just for a moment. I know not everybody here has been in a birth, has watched a birth take place, but it requires some physical space, okay? So I'm a mother. I've given birth a bunch. So I'll just tell you up front, you need more than like this cubic space to birth a baby well. Okay, and you have people attending to you. In all honesty, Mary probably had multiple people attending to her for this birth. Her family would have been there, and if not, common decency would have gotten somebody. Think about going out to Woodstock or camping. You got all these people around, and somebody's in the throes of labor. There will be people to help, even if they hate you, just because there's there are people. You guys tracking with me? So you need at least two, maybe three attendants. You need somebody attending the mother, somebody attending the baby, and ideally someone attending the attendees. Amen, ladies? You need some help when this is happening. And so here's the picture I want you guys to see. There is no room in the inn, most likely the upper room, okay? There's two options at play here. The first one is this. The actual upper room they were staying in was not physically large enough for a birth to take place in. The other option would be there was no upper rooms available, and so they were staying in the main room of the house. What does this mean? That baby Jesus comes out in the midst of everybody. In the midst of everybody. God, Emmanuel, as us, for us, with us. 
I want to show you a couple drawings of Middle Eastern homes from this time period. The first one is a very rudimentary drawing, but here's basically what you're looking at. In these houses, they had a thing that was called a stable or what we would call a manger from the Bible, and it was actually inside the house. It was a couple steps down. It would be a little higher than the stage like this, but still a part of the main room. And they would have these feeding troughs, like you can see these mangers. They were actually little divots built into the floor. There's some excavations of houses like this that this is the floor plan. And so it's very possible uh, that this is the type of setting that Mary gave birth in, okay? Here's why this is important. Because there's the divots in the ground you can see, and the animals would have been able to eat from that because it wouldn't have been that much, that low down to the ground, like a half, a half step floor plan. I can't remember what that's called. A split level plan type thing. They would bring their animals in at night because it was dangerous, it gets cold there, all of those things. And so here, this is really fascinating, right? Jesus is laid in this manger. Now, most of us think Jesus became a carpenter, and our association with carpentry is woodworking. There was very little wood in Israel at this time. Everything is rock and stone. Everything. <laughs> and so when we were there a few years ago, we were told by some experts that it's, uh, the carpentry in our terms would actually be a stonemason. So what they had was these mangers that were like chiseled out kind of bowls like this, and they were stone. Think like a birdbath shaped kind of long. It was really interesting. Okay, go to the other picture. This is a different type of uh, floor plan, but similar. So you've got the upstairs room where the privacy would be, and then you've got the downstairs area where the animals would be. Now, are you getting the picture of how Mary could have given birth in a manger, but also surrounded by family? I think it's important for us to think about this because, again, Jesus was prophesied to be Emmanuel, God with us. And he, I believe he was born in the midst of us, celebrated by his family. Mary was not embarrassed that she got to be chosen as the mother of God. In Luke chapter 2, after that, you can take this down. After the angel tells her she's going to have a baby and it's going to be Jesus, she bursts into this very long prophetic song. And she's saying, God, you're amazing, you're amazing. And basically saying, thank you for picking me. So she wasn't walking in shame. She was every bit expectant of something amazing happening. If Mary could do that, can't we? Can't we be walking in this expectation of what Jesus is going to do when he arrives on the scene of whatever scene we need him in? It's interesting, uh, my last and final birth, um, my child Grace, my, my baby, she was born three years ago, and uh, when I got pregnant with her, a lot of you guys know our story, we had a baby that we lost at 20 weeks, which was our fourth child, a son, and uh, we decided we weren't going to have any more kids, fast forward a couple years, and God says, you need to have another kid, and I said, I don't think so. <laughs> Thanks, but no thanks. And uh, we had a, a wrestle, a legitimate wrestle, and I walked away with a limp because the way that Grace positioned in me messed up my back so bad that I had, like, a limp for quite a while, and I was reflecting on how that was my payment for wrestling with the Lord, I guess. I'm just kidding. But um, but so I, I had Grace, and I'm just going to tell you a moment of her birth. Now, don't, don't be afraid. This is not going to be that much information for you. Um, but I was asleep. I'd had an epidural. I'd been in labor all day, and I had fallen asleep, okay? I don't nap, and this was the kind of nap where you lose orientation of everything. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You wake up, and you're like, am I a human? I don't know what's happened. You know, is, is this earth? Like, I don't, that, that's what happened to me. I was in that type of a sleep. I'd only been asleep for about 30 minutes, and my doctor comes in the room. It's 5 o'clock in the evening, and she says, she wakes me up, and I'm trying to play it cool, so I'm like, and I'm, all I'm thinking is you're still asleep while I'm trying to fake on my face that I'm totally listening. 
And she says, you know, I figured I'm going to get home and I'm going to get called that you're ready. So I'm just going to check you right before I go. And that way I will just know, you know, what the timeline is. I'm like, okay, okay. And all I'm thinking on repeat is you need to go back to sleep. You need to go back to sleep. That was a good nap. Probably the last nap you're going to get for a long time. Get yourself back to sleep. And she checks me, and about two seconds later, she goes, it's time. And if you've ever given birth in a hospital, the whole entourage of all the people and all the stuff comes in. And all I'm thinking is, I need to go back to sleep. It's not time to have a baby. This is time for my amazing nap. What is going on here? And she's, like, getting everything ready. And she goes, are you ready? And I, I wish I had a video of my face because it was something like, <laughs> this, is, this is my fifth time to give birth. It wasn't because I didn't know what was going to happen. It was because I was half asleep. And I looked at Grant and I said, I am not ready. And he looked at me and he goes, you get yourself ready because this is <laughs> happening right now. And I'm like, no, it's not happening. It's not happening. I am not ready. And I look at my doctor with my eyes like bugged out and half, you know, with like tears in them, not because of crying, but you guys know what I'm talking about when you're just that asleep. It was like, I'm dead asleep and now I'm giving birth. And it was a weird experience. And I'm going, I don't think I'm ready. And she goes, no, you're ready. And she was really tall, my doctor. So she's lifting the bed up to be at her height. And then I'm so weird, guys. All I could start saying was, am I on Aladdin's magic carpet? And I'm looking at Grant, and I'm like, I'm falling off this thing. Like, we're, this is a real, it's like a trust fall in your relationship, you know. Like, you better catch me. And, and before I could even get myself ready, my baby was laying on my chest. I was still thinking to myself, I'm not ready. This isn't happening when they're like, whoop, there she is. And I'm thinking to myself, it's too late to think you're not ready because it's already done. It's over. It's what's happening when you have a bunch of kids. And, um, and so I was reflecting on Jesus' birth, and the Lord was reminding me of this story. And I was thinking about it like this. How many of us, we know, we know what God has said. We have this expectation of what he's going to do. There's no surprise. It's just the timing that's a surprise, right? And sometimes we can be so resistant in our minds that it's already happening, and we're still rejecting what he's already doing. I think that's what it was like for Mary, just a little bit. No, 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 Lord, we had this plan. I was going to give birth in Galilee in my home. I bought my, my tub or, you know, whatever it is that she was planning. And, you know, she's like, I didn't want to be here in the midst of all these people. I didn't want to do this now. I don't know that I'm ready, but it's too late, and now it's here. And what we know about Mary was that her heart was so pure before the Lord we know that she was so excited to be a mother, to be the mother of Jesus. You can read that story, um, her song, her prophetic song, where she's singing, thanking God for picking her. And so then she has Jesus in the midst of everybody, God with us, maybe not exactly as she planned, but here's what I want us to see. When Jesus is there, the plan becomes irrelevant. Everything we were working for, everything we assumed, everything we had strategized, it's all out the window. As long as he is in the center, that's all that matters. And I don't know about you, but when I think about my life, I have a lot of plans. A couple years ago, I, saw, I found this sticker, and um, it says, planner's got a plan. And my greatest regret in life is that I didn't buy it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but I loved it, and it's so true. And I have all these plans, right? But sometimes the plans get in the way of what God actually wants to do. And if we will focus on the presence of God, his actual place in our vicinity, 
then it doesn't matter everything that didn't work out like we wanted because he becomes enough. So Mary begins to worship this baby she just birthed. The shepherds show up out of nowhere with all these angelic voices, and they're worshiping this baby she just birthed. There's something significant when we begin to focus on who God is that changes everything. Amen? There's another example of this. I want to share this um, with you. It's Acts chapter 16, and this is Paul and Silas. You guys might be familiar with this story. It's a long story, so I'm not going to put it on the screen. I'm just going to paraphrase it for you. They had been preaching the gospel. They were badly flogged, badly beaten. And the prisons at that time, and I had come across this a couple of years ago, about uh, most likely the way they were bound was that they could not fully extend themselves, so they, they were not in a restful posture, and their skin was just gorged everywhere. So this is not, in our minds, the time to worship. This would be, for most of us, the time to throw in the towel and go, well, I tried. (laughs) How many floggings can I endure? And in the midst of excruciating physical pain, they begin to worship. And if you know this story, what happens is an earthquake comes and, and the ground shakes in such a way that the doors of the jail cells fall off. Here's what's fascinating. They don't leave. They don't get up. Why? Because they weren't worshiping to get the jail cell doors to get off. They were worshiping because when Jesus is in the center of whatever you have going on, it becomes enough. His grace becomes sufficient for us. Amen? And so the the jail cell blows off, and they're going, well, isn't that interesting? (laughs) They could get up and go. They could go, yes, that's what we were contending for. We were believing for that, but that wasn't what they were believing for. They were just experiencing his presence. And I'm so struck by that reality because for, for a lot of us, when we are going through something hard, our worship is directional. It's all about get me out of this, God. You are the Savior. You're the breakthrough. You're the, and, and do that here, right? I, I'm worshiping you because I'm trying to get you to take this door off. I'm worshiping you because I'm trying to get my plan to come to pass. I'm worshiping you because. But when we come And what I think is so beautiful about the Christmas story is that when we come around the presence of Jesus, what we're going for fades away, and what is becomes the best. Amen? What is actually happening becomes what we need. It becomes the the doorway to this absolute manifestation of his presence, his peace, his joy. Amen? So here's my challenge for you. This Christmas whether that's today, on Wednesday, anywhere in between, take some time to imagine yourself connect with the Lord in the midst of where you are, not with an agenda in mind, but just because he's worthy to be worshipped. Just because he's this helpless little baby in this moment. I mean, you know, he's not anymore. Praise the Lord. One other thing I want to mention with you, this is a a Christmas fun fact. A lot of people, especially a lot of Christians, we have the problem with Christmas, especially on December 21st, 25th, because we have this idea that it's a pagan holiday. And um, I don't have enough time to go through all the research to explain this to you. But when you look at all the historical documentation, December 25th was actually celebrated by the um, second century church as Christmas before it became the festival for the sun god. And so most likely what happened with that is that the Roman emperor picked that day to become the festival for the sun god, to stick it to God. That was his, uh, he was doing that on purpose. And so um, 
December 25th is not a pagan day. It's not Jesus' technical birthday either, but it's not a pagan day. Um, And there's this interesting thing about the Christmas tree. A lot of us have heard, I don't know if you've heard this, I've heard this extensively from people that the tree is a pagan symbol of worship. Anybody heard that? That you shouldn't put up a tree in your house because it's a pagan symbol, which, you know, God created the tree, so okay. Um, But also, in ancient Israel, especially we're going like Genesis, Exodus time period, the tree was a symbol of a place of worship. There's actually some scriptures, and I'm sorry I don't have them for you right now, and there's a lot of historical documentation as well that when someone would encounter God, they would commemorate that encounter with a tree. And I love the imagery that most of us have a Christmas tree in our home. It's got lights on it. And so you have this place, not that we are worshiping the tree because that would be so weird, but that we gather around the tree to worship Jesus, that the tree essentially becomes a symbol of our adoration to our king. It becomes a marking place of our awareness of his presence, right smack in your living room, just how he was born in the main room of a house. So my challenge to you over this next week, and maybe you do this by yourself. If you're introverted, maybe you convince your introverted spouse to do it with you, if you're like me. um, And you gather around, and you take a moment to connect with the Lord. You don't have to get around the Christmas tree. But you recognize, Lord, this season is really about you. In our home, what we do is we talk about how we're giving you generous gifts because it's 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 a model that we've received from the kingdom right, that he has given generous to us, and so we get to pattern that for you, and even if the gifts aren't that generous, that's why we give, right, we're giving out of this place because we've been, we've been able to receive, so just, that's my challenge for you over the next week is to make, there's, take your Christmas um, tradition and put something spiritual in the midst of it where you are connecting with the presence of God, not to get something from him, but to worship him because he's worthy, amen, so uh, here's what we're going to do, We're just going to take a moment, and um, I just want us to wait on the Lord. God, what's one thing I can do to adore you in this season? What's one thing I can do to connect with the fact that you are with us, that you actually became like me so that you could connect to me in so many ways? Amen? So, Holy Spirit, we just invite you right now to speak to us. What's one thing we can do over this next week to adore you, to adore you, Jesus? And Lord, I pray a blessing over every person here and every home represented here. Lord, that our homes would be filled with your presence this season. That our homes would be filled with um, the awareness of who you are. And Lord, we want to be audacious worshipers. We want to be people of passion. We want to be people who recognize how spectacular you really are. And so over every person here that's struggling to see you in that light, Lord, I'm asking that you open their eyes in the name of Jesus and help them to see you like never before in this season. And Lord, we just pray divine health and blessing over each and every person here in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. We love you guys so much. If you need anything over the next couple of weeks, please don't hesitate to reach out to Grant and I or really anyone in this room. And we'll see you in 2020. Merry Christmas.